Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is all about going places. We meet the co-founder of an electric motorcycle maker designed for urban travel and driven by a desire for positive impact. The three core tenets that we had in mind when we designed this bike from the ground up. So the first was removable battery, absolutely fundamental. Number two was the desirability, leaning on British quality design for that. And then number three was that it was a attainable price point. And we'll take a ride through Europe with the CEO of a boutique hotel group that boasts an inspired portfolio of luxury properties stretching from the Alps down to the Mediterranean. We get inspired by the heritage, the legacy of the places. We get inspired by the locals. And then we put our contemporary twist to it. This is The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Seb Inglis-Jones is the co-founder of Maving, the electric motorbike maker proudly based in the Midlands here in England, the traditional home of British motorcycle innovation and manufacture. With a mission to address the climate crisis and to transform urban transport, Seb and his team have created the best-selling electric motorcycle in the UK, thanks to a passionate commitment to both classic British engineering and future-focused technology. Seb zipped into Midori House to chat about his love of motorcycles, revving up the EV industry, and how his journey began. We certainly didn't, my co-founder and I, when we met, we didn't go, right, motorbikes, this is what it's all about. We basically met at university. We were studying the same, well, he was studying PPE, I was studying philosophy and English at Durham, and we had, we shared a similar philosophy module, and we were really enjoying a debate we were having, um, but the tutor wasn't so good, so we thought we'd just carry it on at the pub. We sort of chatted for about four hours, and then within about six months, we became best mates. We had lots of shared interests, surfing and music being two, and genuinely within that period, we were like, right, we're going to start a business together. I think we've, there's a, a connection here and fundamentally ability to sort of argue and debate while still being mates that is conducive to be able to start a business together. But we, we knew that we couldn't just do that straight out of university. I don't know who, who has the kind of resilience and the commercial acumen to be able to do that straight away. So we kind of like, right, the plan is that we'll go into the corporate world, we'll do roughly five years in our respective industries. He went down the finance route, I went down the sales and marketing route, and then we'll come out the other end and we will start a business. And the only criteria at that point that it was in some way addressing climate change as the single biggest issue of our era. We didn't know anything else. Just for context, when I went into sales and marketing, I went down the consumer goods route. And one of the companies I worked at was Wreck-It Benkiza, which is based in Slough. And my commute was a bicycle to Paddington, a train from Paddington to Slough, and then a company shuttle bus to the office, which was an hour and a half. It was dreadful. I worked out that if I switched to a motorbike, I would save 26 days a year in commuting time. So pulled the money together, got a bike. And what I didn't realise as a car lover again, was that every morning the alarm would go off and instead of being miserable, I'd be like, oh, I get to ride my motorbike. And every evening, no matter how crap the day at work was, I'd be like, right, I get to ride my motorbike. So I got the bug at that point for riding. And then sort of fast forward a few years and we're getting to the point where we've been in our careers for five years and we're thinking, 
diminishing returns. We're beginning to specialise now. And actually, starting a business, I think, is a young person's game. You need energy. You need that determination. And, and we were getting to the end of that, I think, with our careers, getting to a bit of burnout. Definitely a bit of impending climate doom as well. This is 2018. It's after the Paris Climate Accord, etc. So we thought, right, we've got to get on. And just to that moment, one of my best mates, basically from school, got in touch and said, look, I've just invested in a mechanic out in China who's making electric motorbikes. And this is the first time I'd really heard that word. And obviously, I was excited. He said, look, are you interested in potentially doing the kind of import and distribution in in the UK and Europe? And that sounded fantastic off the bat. Electrification, motorbikes. So I started talking to my co-founder, Will, about this and, and getting excited. And through the kind of initial research we did to finally answer your question, we worked out that China had 80% electric adoption in the two-wheeled space. And they were selling, I think it was 22 million of these things annually. And it sort of leapfrogged the rest of the world. I think people were talking about Norway primarily at that point, you know, 50% electric adoption in the car space. But no, you know, electric motorbikes just weren't a thing. And basically the reason that happened is that they essentially outlawed petrol bikes in one way or another in cities to clean up the air. And the whole industry had to go with zero charging infrastructure to 100. And so what they did differently from the rest of the world is they hooked up little lead-acid car batteries to their existing Honda Cubs. And seven years later, they created a whole industry around lightweight electric two-wheelers with removable batteries that you can take out and charge, like a laptop or a phone, at a standard socket. So you didn't have that whole kind of charging infrastructure problem that is one of the biggest barriers to electric adoption. And so they did all that really quickly, and everyone was riding around on them, and it was great, but no one in Europe really realised this was going on. And I think that's because the mainstream manufacturers were were mainly focusing on high-performance bikes, trying to compete with the internal combustion engine market for that sort of customer and hadn't thought about this low power category for urban commuters essentially i mean it's incredible and so often there is that moment where we talk to entrepreneurs on this show and they say look there it was it was so stark that there was this huge unfulfilled need and here was this big opportunity here was a market that proved to scale i guess we come down to like the sort of usps of maybe one of them clearly is that ease of charging and, and sidestepping that problem about infrastructure. But the other one is, I guess, it's, it's commuter specificity. This is a bike that's conceived to make your life easy, to make commuting easy, right? Was that very clear for both of you and for Will at the beginning? We need to change the way people are getting to and from work, getting around the city, and ease of, ease of use has to be front and centre of all of that. I think to start with, I mean, generally speaking, certainly in Europe, most people live in cities. I don't know what the precise figure is, but let's say 80% roughly live in cities. And I think the average commute in this country is about 6.7 miles. So generally speaking, we're talking urban transport, relatively low mileage. And when you think about electric adoption, you don't need everyone to be driving around in big electric SUVs. A little bit like Adrian from Cowboy on one of your former podcasts, we're big advocates for the idea that two wheels is a very sensible solution for mass adoption of electric. It also is one of the use cases where it makes a lot of sense to be on a bike. It just in terms of if you think about train strikes, if you think about traffic, whatever it might be, it's so quick to get across a city on two wheels. And you generally speaking know precisely what time you're going to arrive because you don't have any nasty surprises in terms of those delays, etc. The use case is there. And then on top of that, when it comes to removable batteries, if you think about the constraints of a battery that is small enough and light enough for you to be able to take out 
and charge at a, at a standard socket, you're obviously going to be limited to some extent in mileage, but you're completely comparable with any low-capacity motorcycle or scooter in terms of the sort of mileage you can cover. And you can easily have just one overnight charge a week, that's it, you know, for, for 70p, and that's your whole week's commuting sorted. So there's all manner of reasons why it makes sense to focus on the urban landscape and why we decided that that was the sweet spot for electric on two wheels. Um, let's put the machines front and centre. They're beautiful. I'm sure some of our listeners will have been ogling the RM1 on websites and magazines, etc. Because what's interesting about it is it's a reflection of an amazing storied British heritage in motorcycle manufacture. You're in Coventry. I don't get to mention, we've already been in Slough. Now we're going to Coventry. These are not places that feature a monocle that frequently. Um, But it's an amazing hub, or it was certainly going way back into the end of the 19th century, when again, actually, interestingly early urban mobility was all electric, but that's a conversation for another day. But tell me a bit about Coventry, about your interest and fascination with that British heritage and why that was the only way you guys were going to get this enterprise going. As you said, quite rightly, you know, I mean, we're now based essentially a stone's throw away from where 50 years ago you would have about 20 British marks leading the world in their motorcycle design. It's one of the few manufacturing spaces where Britain remains but always has been revered in terms of its engineering in the space. And so I quite simply, Triumph is our favourite motorcycle manufacturer when it comes to design, when it comes to quality and finish. I think it's certainly the best British market at the moment. So when we thought about the quality of engineers that we needed to pursue, there was really only one place where we were going to end up. And ultimately, Hinkley, all the Triumph staff live in Hinkley, just down the road. So Coventry, both in terms of its distance from London and its proximity to the talent, just made sense. The fact that it was carrying on this wonderful British heritage story was great. And it's lovely to now see this slight resurgence of British technology and British motorcycling in that space. We're not, there's other exciting things going on in and around us. But neither Will or I are technical people at all. We had, this is one of the first challenges that we had to overcome was that we are commercially minded people. We've got no engineering bones in our body at all. The automotive industry is not the classic Silicon Valley 20-somethings on a beanbag type thing. You need people with significant experience because the standards required for any automotive product to be road legal in Europe or the UK are so high. And so somewhat unlike, I think, other startups, we always knew that we had to go down that route of finding incredibly experienced people. So when we finally got our fundraising over the line, or actually just before we did, we approached the person that we thought was basically the best motorcycle engineer in the country in terms of his ability to lead a team to to make this product. And that's a guy called Graham Gilbert, who was head of product at Triumph. And I think it's no exaggeration to say he was responsible basically for the last 20 years of Britain's most revered motorcycles. Incredibly, exceptionally experienced individual. And we interviewed him on my mum's picnic rug in Leicester Park. This is like lockdown V2, I think. And thankfully, he had a go on our prototype that we developed with an industrial design company. He saw the vision in terms of the low capacity, the movement towards electric, the styling, which he loved, the kind of eras that we were focusing on. And he, and I think, you know, ultimately took a punt on us, and thank God he did, because we now have what we consider to be one of the most talent dense engineering teams in the country, if not the world. They're just, we've got people on our team who've been designing building motorcycles for 40 years and with 
Graham came the authority to hire exceptional individuals like our head of procurement, who was also head of procurement at Triumph and London Electric Vehicle Company and Polestar and Arc. And, and then with them came our ability to work with partners like Bosch, who make the best motors, etc. So I think Coventry, for us, coming back to it, was just the source of all that expertise that we needed to bring on the team and to have a chance to make a success. What do these older marks, established players, primarily in motorcycle manufacture, what do they make of you? Are you popular? I mean, you've stolen a lot of their best talents, I guess. <laughs> Probably not that pleased about that. Or did you tap into a shift even amongst these super experienced and incredibly brilliant engineers that they wanted to maybe start moving into an area that was more environmentally conscious and joined up as well? Well, I think that's it. I th- dare I say it, motorcycling is behind <laughs> cars. The motorcycle OEMs are, I think, quite a long way behind cars in terms of their assumption about the move to electric and what that meant for them and completely changing their platforms etc so i think the industry was on the back foot and i think if you're a passionate motorcycle engineer and really you only ever want to design and build motorbikes and you can see the whole world transitioning to electric and the brand that you're working for is not doing that i think you're certainly thinking about the future the next step where's this going and certainly in this country we've got a bit of a problem with our sort of motorcycling world in so far as The average age of a motorcyclist is 53. It's perceived as much more of a niche recreational pastime, when actually in Asia and Southern Europe, it's the number one form of transport. And so for all these reasons, the motorcycle community has been focusing and the OEMs have been focusing on those high power performance machines catering for a slightly different demographic for what we're going for and what we see as maybe the future of motorcycling. I think there was a natural movement towards com- mm. companies that and a draw. I draw these people want to you want to be at the cutting edge, don't you? Ultimately that's even if you're a traditional mechanical engineer, you're mm. excited by what's new and you want to innovate. And yeah. It's really exciting. But, Talk to me a little bit about British manufacture then, because a significant majority, I think, of your components are UK produced. Not everything, sadly. And I think we know there is obviously a deficit in terms of battery tech and production in this country. There's certain economies of scale, which mean you need to look to the United States or principally to China, I think. How tricky a balancing act is that? Is the dream that it's 100% built and manufactured in in the UK down the track? Definitely. I think it's completely fair to say it's a shame. We'd like to be at 100% for many reasons. One, because it's actually, from an environmental perspective, working with local suppliers is always going to be better. Also, I think that when we do make things well, we make them really well, if that makes sense. And just structurally, it's much more easy to work with suppliers who are just down the road in terms of the kind of speed of delivery and and the the way in which you can innovate and bring products to market. So for all those reasons, we'd absolutely love to make it in the UK. As I said, also, I think it's nice seeing some of the resurgence of this manufacturing story. And there are some things that we do really well, but there are still things which are just undeniably, I mean, China, for example, I think builds the vast majority of the world's battery cells. And so turning to the biggest supplier of two-wheel batteries was a natural thing for us to do in order to get the quality that we need. But yeah, 65% of our components are made in the UK, which we're really proud of. I think to our knowledge, that makes us the most British homologated road legal automotive product in the world. Although I'm happy to be corrected on that. Challenge Um, him if you dare. (laughs) We're really proud of that. And as I said, we'll always try and find or drive local manufacturing for sure. Let's talk about a little bit about the aesthetics, because I guess in some senses people would say, look, it's about the technology. It's about function. Form is important in service of that function, but it's in and of itself not that important. 
And we, I imagine, would say, yes, yes, but you're missing the point, which is this thing has to look beautiful, it has to excite, it has to inspire. Describe, perhaps to lay listeners who are not familiar, although they should be, go and do a Google image search quickly, listeners. Describe the bikes. We've got a pared-down aesthetic. There's some a cafe racer, very tr- unashamedly traditional. I don't mean that pejoratively at all. But you're probably more practised at describing it more eloquently <laughs> than me. I think the aesthetics are really important. I think that if your if your mission is to get as many people onto electric transport as possible, it's up to you to bring people on that journey and to make something which is better than, more desirable than its petrol counterparts. I think it's really important. I think I'm right in saying that there are more people who buy cars just to get them from A to B than there are people who buy motorcycles as more of a passion and a sort of expression of them. Again, I think the aesthetics are really important. Also, when we started the business, the only products that you could get that had removable batteries were essentially Chinese import scooters. And not to knock them, because they're very good at what they do, but they are built to a completely different, much lower price ceiling. They're covered in, you know, injection modern plastic. They are... It's just a completely different proposition. I think the sort of discerning European motorcycle lover and the people who I think are going to be brought into that category over time do care about the aesthetics, the quality, etc., who, whom do you target sort of most actively then, Iseb? Are you trying to get petrol bikers to jump on electric for their commutes? Are you trying to win over total two-wheel mm-hmm. n- novices? And what's been the response from bikers? Because I can't help but suspect that even the most dyed-in-the-wool, die-hard ICE motorcyclist who maybe is a Triumph fan or Ducati fan, whatever they might be, they've got to live, love the looks and the feel and the ride of, of the machine, even if they're a bit cynical about it at first. No, definitely. Look, so our ambition is to bring, our kind of mission is to bring the freedom and joy of motorcycling that we were talking about earlier to as wide a community of new riders as possible who you know people who kind of have a respect for the past in terms of that heritage etc but also the future obviously the electric piece looking after the, the environment um so we are very much trying to and we're on a mission to communicate the benefits of motorcycling the enjoyment of motorcycling to a very broad audience so actually the majority now of people who buy our bikes have never ridden a bike before and they've got their license specifically to ride our bike however I think the reason why we've been fortunate enough to actually been received quite well by the motorcycle community as well, and why still a decent portion of our customers are motorcyclists, often who have like, you know, three motorbikes and this is the fourth to their collection, is because of the styling and because we're British. I think there is definitely a bit Mm. of pride there. And also people buy motorcycles more frequently than cars. There are different use cases. People might have an adventure bike for long distance trips and then they've got a racing bike and then they've got, you know, etc. So instead of unveiling a big 300 kilo adventure bike to nip around London, having a sort of lightweight, practical electric bike, which, by the way, doesn't require much maintenance, is sort of quite a convenient addition to the fleet. That makes sense. But no, we are very much trying to, to show people how fun motorbikes are and to get new riders into the category, to move it from this sort of niche pastime back into front and centre of electric transport. So we wanted to make sure that we made something that was completely new. And if you look at the bike, there's no part of it which is just sort of a lazy replica of something that's gone before Mm. but bring all of that love and heritage and and design from the 50s and 60s and actually also earlier the 30s as well into the mix and to make something importantly that was kind of pleasurable to touch you know that had lots of exposed metal work that had the i think enjoyment that you get from existing petrol motorbikes etc just quickly on on price point because 
we're in the sort of five to eight thousand pounds euros ballpark, isn't it, for your machine? The Six cost seven. of the, the machine, and then yeah. And I, I think that's surprisingly reasonable given mm. the tech that's at people's disposal. But how do you see that shaping up? Are you looking to get to a scale where you can be more aggressive and competitive with pricing? Are you happy where you are? Yeah, I, look, I think you've picked up on the third of the three core tenets that, that we had in mind when we designed this bike from the ground up. So the first was removable battery, absolutely fundamental to making this accessible. Number two was the desirability, leaning on British quality design for that. And then number three was that it was a attainable price point. Making stuff in the UK comes at a premium, definitely. But we think that the price point is very attainable. It's the same cost as a lot of premium e-bikes. It is definitely a attainable EV. And that was fundamental. We didn't want to make something that was niche and only £50,000, etc. Only the elite could buy it. This is definitely something that we are hoping is the first of a product line which gets as many people onto bikes as possible. That was Seb Inglis-Jones, the co-founder of Maving. To find out more or to book a test ride, highly recommended, obviously, head to maving.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Eric Dardet is the president and CEO of Beaumier, hotel group that was born in the French mountains and now spans a collection of luxury properties across Europe. From the snow-capped peaks of Switzerland to the rolling hills of Provence, the brand promises a memorable adventure with every stay, drawing inspiration from the heritage and culture of each location. The group collaborates with local artists to create tailored experiences in every property. Eric stopped by Midori House to chat about the importance of authenticity and sincerity in hospitality and how the brand is employing simple fixes to redefine luxury. We love small hotels because that's how you can really, really tailor-make your, uh, your hospitality to your guests and be, be very close to your guests. We, we only do what, what we call leisure hotels and we're really looking at making our, our guests discover beautiful parts of Europe. And there are three key things which are important to us. It's reconnecting to nature. So all our hotels, you're going to open your windows. Tyler will be very happy that you can actually open the windows. This is one of his, <laughs> this is one of his perennial bugbears about hotels that he doesn't like, where you can't do that. But sorry, Eric. That part of life is important to us. So it's that reconnection to the mountains, to the sea, to beautiful countryside. And we want also everyone to reconnect to the localities, you know, go back to the root of things, you know. And the last one, it's all around the well-being. And the well-being for us is around sport, outdoor. It's about skiing, it's about swimming, it's about hiking, it's about mountain biking, that, that kind of well-being. I would say those are the reasons why we wake up in the morning. Your passion shines through, and it's interesting because, actually, I think people can sense the authenticity behind your messages, and that's obviously why you're continuing to enjoy success. Talk to me a bit, though, about making each property different because obviously they are about the place they're about the people the products and you want to reflect that you're the custodian of a brand but you're proud of how different every venue is is that a difficult balance to strike eric or do you find it quite easy i don't know what's easy or difficult but there is real sincerity and we do it with our heart there are a lot of people involved to create a venue we don't invent stories what we do is we get inspired by the heritage, the legacy of the places. We get inspired by the locals. And then we put our 
contemporary twist to it. It's some sort of a modern interpretation of, of a legacy heritage of a place. Mm. And the way we work is the same. So every places we go to, before we start any work, we research, research, we spend time, we meet people. And the more uh, you know about the localities, the more your project will be uh, influenced and the more you're going to bring the real sincerity in what we do. Mm. When we create our product, we always say less is more. So we are much more interested in doing things well than having a lot of it. <laughs> this is, and this is unusual, no, because there's lots of even very, very well-known brands in hospitality who quite literally follow the, the opposite logic. And it, it doesn't compute, does it? Sometimes it is less is more. And if you're trying to convey to people that reconnection you started by talking about, you need less, less clutter, more sincerity, simpler. And absolutely. And I think what's evident in our days is luxury is simplicity. Luxury is time. Luxury is stepping back and, and spending time with your with your loved ones and having experiences and discovering things, you know, that this is luxury. That's the world we live in. Luxury is not anymore about how much stuff you have. <laughs> it's much more to do with when you're going to come out, how enriched you are within yourself. I love that, Eric. I think that's really nice. Tell me, though, is that difficult as the business scales, more hotels, more geographies, they're further away. It's more challenging for you to be everywhere at once. How did you ensure that you kept a grip on those values? Was that difficult to do? It's like anything. You you always have a great collective of people. And the Beaumier Collective is large, is wide, but they all have one thing in common. We all look at life the same way. And our partners, the people who work with, they've been with us for years. So when you work with people for years, they've got the DNA of what you're trying to do. And then it becomes natural. Things also have to be organic. So when you expand, you trust your people. For every project, there are things where you say to yourself, personally, I may have done it a little bit differently, but it doesn't actually matter because what they came up with is actually super good. And, and on top of it, it's, it's aligned with Beaumier, no, no issue. So you, you have to make sure that around you, you're surrounded by people you trust, get the DNA of, of Beaumier and get what you're trying to achieve. So yeah, it has to be natural, organic. I work with different designers. And the reason why we work with different designers is to ensure that once we partner with somebody who's going to have an eye for the design of, of the hotel, they are really in full connection with the place. So in our group of hotels, we've got so far five different designers. So that always brings a little bit of complexity because when they join you, then suddenly there is the world of Beaumier. It's a lot of us. Once they get it, they love it. It's very transparent. It's very easy. It's very sincere. So how difficult is it when you scale up? Not really if you do things simply. It's when you try to make it too complicated and you lose the truth of what you do that it becomes a mess. Well, it's funny. You make it sound very easy, Eric. And actually, lots of, I think, the most enlightened and progressive CEOs and leaders of business, they always make it sound easy. But actually, you, you obviously need to take a fair bit of credit <laughs> for it to seem simple. Is That's often half the trick. You've talked a little bit about working with designers and reflecting that locality. And I'm interested in terms of how you work with artists, with artisans, with designers. It is very collaborative. Yeah. Does that reveal itself while you're researching the different places? Do you trust the serendipity and just people you meet and you say, look, this is actually a good fit? Does it happen by luck almost? Tell us a bit about that. <laughs> I will say both. Okay. <laughs> because the reality is when you start to spend time in each of the localities, you meet people which I haven't thought of. And then you meet them and say, wow, they're exceptional. I don't know how, but, but join the collective and you're going to find something to do with us. So a bit of both. 
I have a dedicated team who search and research. You know, my creative team, uh, they've got two people dedicated. I've got Delphine who work in my team where they spend all their time trying to find the artist, trying to find the local artisan, and, and that's all they do. I spend a lot of time in those localities when we buy a hotel. And then you really meet some fabulous people. We don't search for them, but you meet someone and say, wow, yeah, super cool. You say, oh, um, I'm looking at a hotel in Italy. And suddenly uh, your, your group of creatives says, oh, Italy, you should meet... Uh, this friend of mine. Friend of mine. Yeah, and then yeah. you start and you meet. And So it is a lot of, of serendipity. And that's interesting because I guess if you're running a profit and loss or if you're trying to do a business plan to partners or investors or backers, you can't really put a price on serendipity, luck, a moment of inspiration or someone you bump into somewhere. But so much of the success of the group is based on that. How do you quantify it? The reality of life is we are a business. Guests are willing to spend the right amount of money for something meaningful. You know, when you go and see your backers, your investors or your banks, and when you start to say, all right, I'm having a hotel in the beautiful key locations where people want to go on holidays, what's next? Once you've got the location, my next is tell a story. And if your story is sincere, authentic, ask your guests to pay uh, 20 pounds more, 50 pounds more. They, they will because this is what people are looking for. As we are very relevant to the market, is it difficult to financially be successful? Not that much. Like anybody, you have to manage inflations and everything happening to us, you know, no, no doubt. But will our consumer pay a bit more to stay in one of our hotels? The answer is yes. The beauty of what we do is we are in, in the leisure market. And if you step back and you think, are people going to stop traveling? People want to travel. You know, people want to discover the world. People want to see things. They want to look after themselves. They want to relax. They want to spend time with their loved ones. And so do we see it's going to be a tough time going forward? No, uh, everybody needs a good rest. So what's always, always very important, do it with sincerity. Just finally, tell me about what, what are you most excited about as you look, as you look ahead? It's trying to make a difference to people in the world we live in. I made a difference to my guests because when they came to my hotels, they had time of their lives. I made a difference to all the collective participated to Beaumier who created something which didn't exist two years ago. You know, and, and if I achieve that, happy guy. That was Eric Dardet, the CEO and president of the Beaumier Group. You can learn more about their work by heading to Beaumier.com. And that's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. While you're there, why not subscribe to Monocle magazine and read more about better businesses every month. You can, of course, also follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. If you want to get in touch with the team, email Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.